Hey lovelies, before we get started, a quick snuggle dress update. The world's most flattering sweater dress that I just can't keep in stock is restocked again in most sizes and both colors, the mustard and yes, even the black. You can see it and score yours at impactfashionnyc.com. If your size is not in stock, add yourself to the wait list. Returns are coming back every day, and once they're thoroughly checked, they get put back on the site, and the lovelies on the wait list get notified in the order of the list. So the sooner you add yourself, the better. Thanks again for all your support, and enjoy the show. From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. I'm Rifki Itzkowitz, and on today's show, we kick off a winter-long series on mental health with a discussion on depression. We talk about the power of the language we use, what's happening inside the depressed brain, living with a depressed partner, the selflessness of suicide, and how depression shows up differently in men and women. Over this winter, you are going to get to know and love Rachel Tuckman as much as I do. A licensed mental health counselor who is also my go-to resource for all things mental health, Rachel agreed to embark on a bit of a journey with me. We're going to spend this winter getting granular on a variety of mental health topics, defining exactly what they are, why they're not just in patients' head, and how we can best support those suffering around us. Hi, Rachel. How are you doing today? Hi, good. Happy to be here. I am excited because we are embarking on a little bit of a journey together. Um, So I want to give everyone a little bit of context for what it is that we're doing. Usually when I have a guest, we start out talking about like uh, who you are, where you came from, why you're interested in what you do. And we've done that all already. Uh, You were actually one of the very first guests that I had. Thank you for that. And and it's it's a really great episode. Highly recommend that if you haven't heard it, you go back and you listen to it. Um, It involves a lot of very cool things, including prison, not Rachel's stay. Don't worry, she's fine. it's, it's a cool episode, and I'm going to link it in the show notes so you can listen to it. You are also my go-to mental health person. There's a thing that I don't understand in mental health terms, or if there's someone who I want to complain about, I generally go to you about this. So <laughs> what I wanted to do was, you know, we had, we had talked about this a lot, that there were kind of these topics, I guess you could say, that become popular and that get a lot of attention and are really at their core misunderstood. Um, and, and specifically around mental health, especially we're in winter now, these are when these kinds of issues tend to get a little bit worse. Um, and things kind of crop up. We're all home and it's cold and that's not a great recipe for anything. And so what we wanted to do was break down these mental health topics and really tackle them one at a time and give an in-depth view into each of them so that we can all be better informed, and less of a butthead to the people in our lives. Yes, I like that. That's a good goal. Yeah, exactly. It's it's a general life goal that I have. Yes. Don't be a butthead. I love so, it. So to, you know, with, we're going to be tackling a whole bunch of different topics. Um, we're going to, today's is depression. So we're going to dive into that in a little bit. But what are, what do you hope that people get out of this larger series uh, that we're starting on today? So I really hope that, that this helps people to be a little bit more sensitive to the language they use. 
because um, I find, and I'm definitely, I think, more sensitive to it than others because of the work that I'm in. But I find like when people say things like, oh my gosh, I'm so depressed because, you know, my show was canceled or like, oh my gosh, you're so skinny, you look anorexic. Or, you know, when people say things like that, um, it, it for me, it rubs me the wrong way because there's really people that are seriously suffering with depression or people that have an eating disorder and are and are really anorexic. And I think that when we like use that language, um, we diminish the experience or like I'm traumatized, you know, we diminish people's experiences and we cause stigma, you know, and we create more misunderstanding so that people don't take things as seriously. So when we say I'm so depressed, my show is canceled, then it's hard to relate to the person who's actually depressed and can't get out of bed because then we say things like, why can't you just like get up? Like if you get up, you'll feel better. So I think that it's important to have these conversations so that we understand what these things really mean. And that maybe we're a little bit more careful in how we describe our feelings. Um, and then it helps us to be more sensitive to, to people that are really going through these things. Like you said, that that awareness. And I think that also it becomes especially hard when certain words take on a different English meaning than clinical meaning. Um, you know, when they when clinically that means something for someone, but in just the way that we use it in our vernacular, like you were saying, oh, I'm so depressed, my show is canceled, then that you know, it, it mixes up where the clinical definition ends and the like vernacular starts. And that's yeah. where things get, get confused. So that's what we're hoping to do with this larger series. You're going to be hearing a lot from Rachel over the next few weeks. And I get to spend a lot of time with her over the next few weeks. And we're not mad about this. We're very much not mad about yeah. this. Um, and we're going to have a good time. Yeah, exactly. And breaking down all of these, um, these topics really down to their granular bits and how we can, and how we can be more sensitive to those around us while having a great time doing it. So today's topic Okay, but we, I, I vote that next episode we record in a coffee shop somewhere together. Okay, oh, go ahead. Th that sounds fantastic. Also, there would be so much background <laughs> noise and that would make editing such a That's pain. That's true. Um, okay, forget it. Okay, no, well, the, we've been trying to do this coffee day for I don't even know how long. And yeah. Whatever, it's fine. <laughs> this will this will have to sub for now. Um, which, so welcome everyone. Welcome to your proverbial co coffee shop. Yes. So today we're talking about depression. Yeah. Um, so Rachel, can you define for us, what is depression? Yes. Okay. So depression is a long-term mental illness. Okay. And it impairs your social functioning, your occupational functioning. So your ability to like work and just other important areas of your life. Um, and it lasts a long time. So usually when someone has depression, they'll have a hard time doing just like basic daily living things. So it's hard to get out of bed. It's hard to brush your teeth. It's hard to get dressed. Your appetite is impacted. Your sleep is impacted. Your ability to enjoy the things that you used to enjoy is impacted. There's a lot that goes on. Your energy levels are impacted. Um, just like your overall mood, meaning things that might've made you excited or like that would have made you laugh. Like there's like kind of nothing there anymore. So you really start changing as a person. You start maybe feeling worthless as a human being, really never even like having any kind of respect for yourself. Um, thinking about death a lot more, that, that definitely comes up. A lot more physical symptoms too. A lot of people with depression complain about body aches and headaches. So overall, really just like not feeling good. And it's a constant heaviness, really. And I have had clients with depression tell me like, it literally feels like there's like someone sitting on you at all times. Um, so there could really feel that like physical weight of sadness um, hanging on you. Um, so that that's, it's a lot it's a lot more intense than just being in a bad mood or being disappointed or feeling sad. And it's persistent. So 
on a chemical level, what is, what is happening? Like, meaning, yeah, there are times when I feel sad. I am not clinically depressed. I've never been diagnosed with depression, but there are times when I feel fat, sad, or when like, I think of it as like being in a funk or whatever. I don't know, last a day or two, eat some ice cream, feel better. So how, so how is what's happening in my brain when I have a bad day different from what's happening in someone who is clinically depressed brain when they're in an episode or always, or is it, does depression work in episodes kind of that it kind of comes and goes or not really? It can, depending on, you know, what kind of depression. And that's the thing also, like depression, you know, we use the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistic and Statistical Manual of, you know, of mental illnesses to like diagnose someone. So I personally do not use it. A, I don't diagnose, but I also don't like to use it because I feel like sometimes when we like check off the checklist and we get very stuck on, you know, oh, do they match all of the things in the list? Sometimes we miss things or we only see someone within that box. So I personally don't love to use it. I do think it is a good guide in general for for us to have reference, but the DSM really um, looks at specific like symptoms that you need to kind of check off. Um, And and one of the um, indicators is that it's like a persistent thing for two weeks or more. And it can come and go. um, And that's why, again, like it's great to use the DSM, but like you might not fit all of the criteria, but still have depression. And it may not be two weeks or more. It may only be a week, but like your functioning like is really, really impaired. So we might, we're not going to be like, well, you know what, let's wait another seven days until we get you help. Even though you're (laughs) expressing suicidal ideation and like, you just don't want to be, it hasn't been two weeks. So we're just going to, you know, so we really also have to use some common sense. Um, So it can come and go, but generally, even in the times where it lifts a little bit, the depression, it still feels very hard and it's still lingering, you know? And that's the difference between like kind of stress or sadness versus depression is like in between sadness, like someone can make you laugh and you can have a good time. And there might be parts of your life where you're like, you know what, I'm so grateful and I'm happy and I feel good. And, you know, and so you can, you can live with depression though, even when you're maybe with your kids, let's say, or with family and, and, you know, you feel like you should be happy. There's like a sadness there. And then on top of that becomes a shame of like, why can't I be happy right now? Look at my life. I have so much to be grateful for and I'm miserable. And by the way, that compounds the depression and that makes people feel even worse. I'm sick and there's something wrong with me. And then that can kind of trigger that suicidal ideation of like, I don't, I shouldn't even be here. I can't even appreciate my life. I make everyone miserable. I'm so unhappy. Nothing's going to make me happy. Like, why should I even be here? So there's, you know, that piece again, it, it's not, it's not so black and white. Um, and so we kind of have to know the individual. You have to know yourself. If you feel like your functioning is really like, this isn't normal for me, or this doesn't feel right then I would say you don't have to make sure that you check off all the boxes, just go get help. And so what's happening in your brain, when they've done brain scans of like depressed brains versus like non-depressed brains, they see there's actual like shrinkage in some of the areas of the brain that are responsible for pleasure and for pain mediation um, and for motivation and for appetite. And um, so the two like kind of main like chemicals that are Um, the most important for us in terms of our ability to experience pleasure and, um, you know, the reward areas of our brain are dopamine and serotonin. And so those are our feel-good chemicals. Those are the parts of our brain that help us manage our emotions. Um, They also help us, you know, like I said, to have, to feel pleasure and to like seek reward and want to do things that make us happy. And then there's that cortisol, which I'm sure you've all heard about. We all know that stress hormone cortisol 
there's definitely parts of cortisol that we actually need that when it's released in our body, it's a good thing. So like when you exercise, your body releases cortisol, right? Because your body's under stress. So stress overall is not a bad thing necessarily, but when you're in a depressed brain, the cortisol levels are so high that it becomes damaging to your body and then your body can't repair it. Um, so there's definitely like a lower rate of um, those feel-good chemicals being released in your brain. Again, there's parts of your brain that are shrinking that are important for your daily functioning. And then also we know that your brain is constantly on this like high alert, your amygdala, which is like the lower part of your brain in the back of your brain, which is basically the part of your brain that like is in charge of keeping you safe. It's that fight or flight response comes from there. Um, it's, you know, indicated a lot in anxiety. The amygdala is kind of like always on like high alert, like what's going, okay, when's the threat coming and what do I need to do? So we find that the amygdala is actually more active in a depressed brain, meaning it's always kind of like looking for that threat and danger. And so again, when you're always living in that state, you're releasing those stress hormones and that is terrible for your body. And that's why we'll find that people with depression have a lot of body pain, right? Because again, if you're releasing those stress hormones, your body feels bad, you have back pain, your shoulders hurt, your jaw hurts, your face hurts, your head hurts. Um, so basically there's a lot of like, a lot of the good stuff that's supposed to be released in your body is not coming out of, of, of your brain. And a lot of the bad stuff that we sometimes have that should be kind of, you know, infrequent, there's a lot more, there's higher levels of it. And so that's why medication is sometimes ind indicated for someone with depression because either their brain cannot produce those hormones. And so they need medication to do that kind of like a diabetic and, and insulin, right? That like, they can't just produce it on their own. They need that medication to help them do it. Um, and then there's other things also along with medication that can help support, you know, your brain's neuroplasticity by helping it grow. And that's the beautiful thing about our brains is that our brains can always grow and change with a depressed brain. It's harder you know, because again, there is that shrinkage and because there are certain chemicals that are not being produced that would help our brain grow. Um, so medication is a big piece. And then, you know, we can talk about this more, but nutrition, sleep, exercise, hugs from people, physical contact releases chemicals in our brain that help us feel good and, and make us feel better. Um, and I'm going to let you talk, but I, I actually also want to talk about this article that I just saw in the Wall Street Journal, I think, that was talking about the power of like a hug. And it was talking about like specific hugs, how it depends like how you hug a person, but it can literally like, I'm trying to find the article right now while we talk, it can literally make them feel um, completely different. Like it can change um, their, their entire mood. And so it was saying the perfect hug should last 10 seconds with crisscrossed arms, like around their neck, which is so interesting. So That's so fascinating. Around That's your very face. specific. Yes. And they did, they looked at like a, an experiment of like a hundred and something people, which is pretty small, but still, you know, um, and they found that hugs were better than cuddles. Um, which I thought was so interesting. And they found that 10 seconds hug, 10 second hugs specifically. So not just like hug, you know, move on. 10 second hugs provoked more pleasure with five seconds giving slightly less joy and one second squeeze inspiring the least happiness. And so they said hugs in which both participants crisscross the arms higher for arousal, right? So around the neck, and you can imagine it. They even had a picture, um, which I'll show you, but people won't be able to see, but um, while embraces in which one participant encircled the waist while the other reached to clutch the shoulders were rated slightly higher for pleasure, which I thought was so cool. And here's the picture. Like number two is, can you see it? 
the next. Yeah, I can. Right? So I thought that was so interesting. So hugs and when, when they're. See, I kind of know this already because what you're describing is like a big Hagrid hug. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That's yeah. what you're describing. You're describing more. And also I'm short. I'm barely five two. Yeah. So like most <laughs> of the people really who I hug are completely enveloping me. Right. Um, so that also, you know, kind of that, that also plays in yeah. to, to that, you know, just a height difference and yeah. all of that. And yeah, when you think about like a good hug, it is all encompassing in that yeah. way. And if you think about it, like when you have a baby or a child or again, even an adult, but think about babies, like what do we do with the baby when they're first born right away? It's like a thing now, right? That skin to skin, but where do they go? Like on your chest, right? Like right on top of you so that they don't put them like on your tummy. They don't put, they're on your chest, like right up, like on. And, and that's what we do when we hold babies. We like smush them close to us by our hearts, by our chest. So, and, and there is again, research, Stan Tatkin, he's a couples therapist and he does a lot of like work around this. He talks about how there's those 10 second hugs that they lower your cortisol levels and they reduce reduce those feel good chemicals. So like a hug for someone who's depressed or sad even can really do something for their brain, for their body, you know? So I thought that was so, and 10 seconds, like don't, you know, not that right. little don't, squeeze or like- tap, Don't skimp you know? on it, enjoy it, so, you know? Yeah. Save for the moment. Yeah. That also kind yeah. of makes a lot of sense when we think, like, we know that there has been higher incidents of depression, anxiety, and all of that over the past two years with the pandemic yes. and everything that's been going on. And well, first of all, living in a pandemic is stressful. Yes. Uh, end of story. Um, and slightly depressing, but also, um, you know, not having that physical contact as much with people. Yeah. Um, and And especially with mask wearing, not being able to really connect with people and really see their faces that makes that you know that is that makes a difference yeah and I noticed even just as I'm talking now I'm saying I just said living in a in a pandemic is depressing which Mm. I want to which I don't want to do because you know we're talking here in this clinical context and what it actually means and you know we've spoken about some of the symptoms and things but how is what you're describing, aside from the fact that it shows up on a scan, which I think is important, you know, if you can take a blood test and see that you're diabetic and you can take a brain scan and see that there's, you know, shrinkage in areas of, of the brain and real change there, um, you know, this looks different, similar to like, if we think of the brain as a muscle, then, you know, a strained muscle or a tired muscle or something like that, that needs physical therapy or medication or whatever, the brain also is a muscle that needs medication sometimes and all of that. But how is what we're talking about different from just being sad or different from like my show getting canceled and is depressing? Like how, which I mean, it's a stupid example, but I think it works to kind yeah. of illustrate it because how, like, aside from the chemical component, is there a reason why people who are depressed clinically can't just like figure it out? Yeah. So so in terms of like the sadness piece or even, so let's talk about the sadness piece first. Sadness is a human emotion that we all feel, right? We all feel sad at some time. Certain times during our lives, we'll feel sad. Someone died. We got a divorce. We lost our job. We're in a pandemic. We, you know, got in a car accident. We're uh, we going through infertility. There's reasons that we feel sad. It's a natural reaction to situations that cause us pain, right? Or upset. And there's varying degrees of sadness, by the way. So if someone dies suddenly and they're young, let's say, like we are devastated versus when our grandmother, who was 102 and lived an incredible life and had a million grandchildren and great grandchildren, were sad, but it's not the same level, right? Right. So there's like those varying degrees of sadness. And like other emotions, though, sadness usually is temporary and it fades with time, right? 
in this way, that's how it's different from depression because I'll be sad, you know, that my grandmother passed away, but I understand this is part of life and I'll miss her. And there may even be times at, at holidays that I cry because I miss her, but I'm able to like live my life, you know, or I'm even sad, let's say about my fertility journey, let's say, and, and again, this differs, but let's say I'm sad about my fertility journey for sure. For me, like I'll speak from my own experience. I was sad during, you know, my struggle with infertility, but I didn't, I was never depressed, you know? So it was something that I thought about and it was very painful for me and I cried, but there was so much more in my life that I didn't get depressed. Thankfully, you know, I had a support system. I, I had access to treatments. Like there was so much going on for me that I, I didn't sink into a depression where it's very possible that I could have, you know, but I didn't. I want to pause you right there. Yeah. So describe to me, let's, th that's actually a great example. Um, and for anyone who, who doesn't know, you have three beautiful daughters, two of whom were born through assistive reproductive technologies, we'll say. Um, <laughs> so, and they're all really cute, but side note. Um, so when you're going through that journey, can we kind of like, let's compare and contrast. What was your actual experience life? You were not clinically depressed. Mm -hmm. And what would that have looked like if you were clinically depressed. Let's, let's take that from two angles to kind of solidify what the difference is between someone who is sad, maybe upset, going through a hard time dealing with a lot in their life and someone who is clinically depressed. Right. So, so my sadness looked like I would go to the doctor and then when I would come out of the doctor, I would be crying hysterically. I would call my sister. I would say, it's never going to happen. I'm so sad. I have, I had, I unexplained secondary infertility. So I would say my daughter is going to be alone forever. This is horrible. I feel so bad for my husband. Like he didn't ask for this. It's not, why is my body failing? But then I would, you know, she would be there for me and she would listen. And then we would hang up and I would go home and get my daughter ready for school and give her a big kiss. And I would actually feel happy because I was with her and I would feel so grateful. And my husband would give me a hug and be like, it's okay. We'll get through this. And then we would go to work and I would talk with my coworkers and I would be able to smile and laugh and I would live my life. And I had my friends and I felt like I was, it, it didn't, it wasn't all encompassing for me. And, you know, so there were definitely certain times, like when I would have a failed treatment or if I would get my period, or if my daughter would ask me for a sibling that it would really hit me hard. And I would feel super, super sad. And maybe it would even ruin the rest of my day. But then the next, you know, the next day or a few hours later, I was able to function again. For someone who's going through fertility treatments, it does not look like that. They may have trouble getting to appointments. When the appointment is over, they may not be able to function for the rest of the day, the rest of the week. They may have serious irritability or anger, you know, and again, I had anger at times, but it, I would express it and then I would be able to kind of move on. But there was like this anger, there could be an anger that that like they can't get rid of or an irritability that they can't get rid of or an unexplained like that they're just like mad at everyone for no reason even you know it's like this person's trying to help me but I just can't even let them in they isolate themselves they might kind of hide I don't want anyone to see me I don't want to go anywhere I don't want to do anything I don't want to eat I don't want to sleep I don't want to you know so it becomes like I said an all-encompassing that they can't function um and they can't even do what they need to do, you know? So if the doctor's like, all right, you know, you're ovulating, you guys, we got to like, you know, we're doing that super romantic time intercourse thing. Like, and you're like, I, I don't even want to, you know, then it would become, that's more of an issue, you know, where. So where the inability to move on is the disease essentially. Yeah. yeah. The inability to function again, that's what it is. It's when it's impairing your daily functioning, you cannot live your life 
Meaning I can be sad all day, but I'm still going grocery shopping, cooking dinner, cleaning my house. I can have that lingering sadness, but I still go to the gym and I meet my friends. And, you know, even if I'm crying with my friends, I'm still living my life. When you stop living your life, that's when we say, okay, the depression is overtaking you, you know, and that's where, where we, we start being concerned. Um, so we want to make sure that, you know, we're paying attention to that. Like, is this person that I care about or me, is it me? Am I changing? Am I starting to kind of like hide myself and, and withdraw from the world? And that's the differentiation, withdrawing from the world, you know? Right. So, which is, you know, it's an interesting way to kind of pin it down because, if the instinct is to tell someone to just get over it, no, I literally can't just get over it. That is what is wrong with me. Like that is the disease. Yeah. And that's why I need to be on the medication or go to the therapy or, you know, do whatever it is that, that, you know, that happens. Right. It's like telling someone with a chronic illness, like, can't you stop being sick? Like, no, like that's literally the whole point of what's happening. You know, like I have arthritis, I have, you know, whatever it is, like you can't, you can't just stop being sick. Like, can I manage the symptoms? Like if I have access and support, like, sure, I can try. But sometimes if your pain is so great, you can't get to the doctor. You can't make the phone call. You can't get out of bed. Same thing here, you know, and, and asking that question is never helpful anyway. Instead of like, why can't you? It's, it should be, what can I do to help? You know, mm, how can I support yeah. you? You know, you can't do it. Can I do something for you? You know? Right. Like, what can I do to make your life simpler so that you can handle this thing instead of basically blaming and shaming the person who is doing the best they can with the with the actual brain that they've been handed? Yeah. And you don't have to do it alone. Let me help you. I see it's hard for you. I see that this is a struggle for you. Can I help? You know, can I drive you to an appointment? Can I go pick up your medication? Can I look up a new therapist for you? You know, can I bring you dinner? Can I help you organize your, your life? You know, again, like with boundaries, what makes sense for you as a family member or a friend, but you know, instead of asking that question, like, why don't you? And again, it's hard. It's frustrating when you see someone, you know, who's, you know, struggling or, or, you know, really hurting themselves by not getting the help they need. If you're a family member, especially, it can be so hard. If you're a spouse, right? A lot of empathy for spouses who live with depressed partners. Like it is so hard, Um, you know? And a lot of the time it's just a matter of like, A, you really have to take care of yourself. If you're a spouse, you must take care of yourself. If you can go to therapy, please do that or a support group. but also just saying like, is there something I can do to make this easier for you, you know, to help you help yourself? Um, I think that's important, Right, it's, it's a struggle. And I do want to acknowledge that it's, it's so hard, you know, if, if anyone's listening and they have a depressed partner or a family member, you know, I don't want them to think that it's like, you know, so easy to have compassion. It's really hard because it affects your life in, in a really heavy way. Um, So it's hard sometimes to have that compassion of like, okay, I get it. You can't get out of bed. Yeah, but you need to help take care of the kids. Like I can't do it all myself, you know? Right. You you as a partner only have so much bandwidth also. Yeah. Yeah. And and having the bandwidth of two people is I'm sure exhausting. Yeah. It's hard. Right. Are there, are there certain people or certain personality types? Like I know some people who are just miserable. I think of them as just miserable people and like whatever, they're just grumpy. I don't know. They're just miserable. Um, I don't, I'm not saying that they're clinically depressed. I don't know. Um, but are there some people who let's say who, when going through a hard time, you know, are more likely to, I guess I have two separate questions here, which is, are there some people who are more prone to depression and also separately, are there like, 
does depression need to be brought on by something like following this example through someone is dealing with infertility and then that slips into clinical depression. I don't really blame them. Like it's hard and kind of makes sense. And like, yeah, that sucks. But are there some people who are just like depressed, like who are just for no apparent reason, does there have to be an instigating incident? So the research shows that like, usually there is like a trigger, right? And it could be something like early childhood trauma, you know? And again, we know that trauma is really defined not by the event itself, but like by its impact on you, right? So Mm -hmm. each person gets to define what that trauma is. Um, It could be, you know, low self-esteem. It could be a history, when you have a history of mental illness in your family, so it could be bipolar, depression, um, that definitely puts you at risk to, have um, a lot more of a likelihood of developing depression from, you know, a a life circumstance that's difficult. Um, A history of substance abuse, people who have used drugs in the past um, or alcohol, they're more likely to struggle with depression. Is that because people who are already prone to depression are also prone to substance abuse or because substances alter your brain? Yes, to both. Okay, (laughs) fair enough both, right? And it's kind of chicken or the egg, like we're not sure here. But we do know that using alcohol and drugs, again, shrinks that your brain, it does something to it, it alters it. So that's definitely like if you were someone that you know, people will say this also how they know people who have used drugs or alcohol, and they're just different people, you know, they were so full of life and happy and whatever, and then they started using and they're like a shell of themselves. So again, it it could be because you know, something set them off and they started using, or again, it could even be like, a you know, they were in college and they started doing it for fun. And it wasn't even like a coping thing. It was just like a social thing. And then it turned into this full-blown addiction. And then throughout that use, they've kind of altered their brains and then they've altered their ability to, you know, cope and um, handle life in like a healthy, you know, normal way. Um, lack of family support. We see a lot of depression and anxiety um, and suicidality in like LGBTQ. So anyone who's come out as lesbian or gay or bisexual, and if they have family or transgender, if they have family that's not supportive, um, we see a really high rate of depression. Um, chronic pain, people with chronic pain. And again, this makes sense. Like if you're living with chronic pain, it's a really difficult way to live. Um, and it gets in the way of so much of your daily living and functioning. And, and people feel a lot of anger at their bodies and you know self, self-blame and shame. Um, and so there's a lot of depression with um, chronic illness, eating disorders, any history of like anorexia, bulimia, PTSD, that kind of stuff. We see a higher rate of depression. And just anyone in general who has like any lack of support system, Um, So if you're someone who is isolated from family and you really don't have many friends and, you know, and you're living alone in this pandemic, like there's a higher incidence of depression, which again, makes sense, you know? So those are kind of the risk factors. There are some people that walk around grumpy their entire lives, but like, you know, maybe they're just more cynical or, you know, they're kind of like, you know, the, the Debbie Downer, you know, Debbie Downer skits from SNL, like maybe they're just Debbie Downers, um, but they're not necessarily depressed. They're just negative you know, um, and, and there's a difference too, because again, like they're going about their lives. They're just like, you know, with the gray cloud over their head all the time. Um, but I think it is important for us to like, think about that. Also, sometimes someone will have depression 
and they could be smiling and they could be, you know, they are living their lives and they're, they're doing what they're supposed to do because, you know, they feel like they have no choice. So we think that they're functioning because, Hey, the guy shows up to work and he makes all the jokes at shul and, you know, Oh, she's like with her kids all the time, but inside it could be that there's like really this like intense, intense struggle. And that's why I said, you know, originally like, we look at this checklist from the DSM or, you know, when we Google it online, what does depression look like? It's going to tell us like they can't function. And, and I've been saying it here too, like they really can't function. And sometimes it's called high functioning depression. They are functioning and they are the guy or they are the girl, you know, or that woman who's doing, but inside there's this crushing pain that they're living with every day that they can't get away from you know, and sometimes that's the mask for it, you know, well, if I act like everything's okay, maybe it'll be okay. But then the, you know, the flip side of that is that that tortures them even more because I'm trying to make everything okay, but it's just not. And like, I can't stand to be in my own skin because I'll never be okay. And that's like, I'm doing everything right. And it's still not working. Yeah. And, And so that's where it comes in. Like, maybe I just shouldn't be here because it's so painful to live this life. Like I'm trying my best and it's never going to feel better. And, and I'm a burden to people because I I'm smiling, but like, I'm just so miserable, you know? Right. As you're talking, I'm thinking of Robin Williams. That's right. Like that's, that's exactly who I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of someone, I mean, obviously neither of us knew him at all or even well. Um, but we did know that he died by suicide and you, he would be the last person on the world that you would think would be unhappy because he was so happy and so like gregarious and so into making sure that everyone around him was happy. And I think that it's, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it is fair to say that kind of like suicide is the most extreme I don't want to say symptom because it's too late at that point but but it is the most extreme manifestation of depression right yes yeah Um, talk to me about that suicidal ideation um attempted suicide dying by suicide is that just I'm so miserable the world would be better off without me yeah so I think that people kind of there's like this narrative I guess around um, suicide that it's like selfish and it's so interesting because I feel like suicide is like actually the complete opposite they actually think that they're being selfless by doing this because they're saying I'm unburdening you from my pain because it will never you I'm I'm getting in the way of your happiness I will never be you know someone who is helpful and joyful and whatever so like you're better off without me and that's literally the thinking of someone who decides that they don't want to be here anymore. So I think that's important to acknowledge is that like when people do that, it's because they feel like they're just too much for the world. Like nobody can help them and their pain is too much. And, and, you know, if they are thinking, you know, sometimes they're not thinking, sometimes it's just the pain is too much and there's like no rational thought there, but it's actually really not a selfish thing. And I think we need to be so careful um, to acknowledge that and like how we speak about it to, you know, cause it, it vilifies a person who's in so much pain. Like imagine what you have to do to decide that you are going to remove yourself from this world. Like when I think about it, it just, it, it creates like so much sadness inside of me that, that there's someone that could be suffering that much. Um, and I think we need to like really tune into that. And, um, and it makes sense that it's something that, that they would think that they're, you know, that, that someone who is so depressed to the point of suicidal ideation or attempting or ultimately going through with it, that they would 
really feel very strongly and rationally that their pain is too much for the other people around them to handle and that they're doing them a favor because their pain is too much for them to handle. So why would anybody else around them feel any different? Because that's the, like, that is the reality for that person. Yeah. And we talk about like protective factors when we talk about suicidality, like things that could possibly prevent someone from, you know, dying by suicide or deciding that like, you know, they, they're just like done living in this world. And so there are things like, you know, having children or, you know, having a partner or having a pet or, you know, religious or, um, you know, like there's so many different things, you know, that can like be preventative. But if some of those factors go away, like, you know, oh, my kids, but my kids don't speak to me. Or, you know, I have a child that passed away or my wife, but my wife left me or my dog, but my dog died or my, you know, religious, but I hate my religion. It's full of shame and guilt and, and, or not even I hate my religion. Maybe I've done so many things that I feel like I'm a bad person religiously, like God hates me. And so like, what good am I here? You know, so there are protective factors, but sometimes those protective factors actually like aren't protective anymore. And so we have to think about that too, you know, like how, there's really only so much, you know, that we can do for a person that feels so sad. And like, sometimes those things are not enough. And yeah, you know, when they feel like, like my pain is so bad that the only way to escape it is to not be here anymore. Like that, again, is a whole other level that like, even I feel like words don't even give it justice. And, you know, I, I, I hope that we'll have more conversations around this from people who have like family members who have passed away from suicide. Um, so that we can really understand like what goes on for a person who's going through that, because I think it would create more empathy and less judgment and less stigma. Um, So, you know, I know we don't really hear about that, certainly not in the Jewish community, but I know there are definitely people in like the, you know, non-religious, non-Jewish world who talk about this a lot, like Matt Haig, he's an author in the UK. He talks a lot about his depression and suicidality. And he wrote a book, Reasons to Live, which I think is a great book to read, um, where he lets you into his mind on the, the days when he was feeling the lowest. And he, you know, he did, you know, want to die and he did make attempts um, to die by suicide. And and he talks about that. And he, he always says he's so grateful he's here and it's worth the fight. And he always thinks about like that there are better days ahead and even on his worst days but it's really hard. And if you are someone who has never felt that way, it's really difficult to understand it. Um, but I think we really have to attempt to try to understand it by listening to their stories and, and hearing people speak about it. And not just you know, the clinical stuff, like listening to real people's experiences and stories and hearing the family members of people who have died by suicide and listening to them and and you know what was going on and how they tried to help and you know i think a lot of time people blame family sometimes too oh well you didn't see and you didn't try hard enough and you didn't this and you didn't that and it's like sometimes like it's not about that sometimes there's really you know it's a scary thing to say but like sometimes there's nothing you can do you can do everything but it's still not enough for that person you know and i think right in the same way that you can't control other people's thoughts or actions these are thoughts and actions with awful consequences, but ultimately not something that people around, around, you know, the, the suffering person, the patient, whatever you want to call them can, can control. I do want to point out one sensitivity thing that we've both been doing. And I actually learned this from Sarifka Cohn at links, um, which is we've both been intentionally using the phrase died by suicide, um, um, or died of suicide as opposed to committed suicide. Um, and what language like that does is that it acknowledges that we're talking about someone who's ill. We're talking about someone who essentially died of depression. Um, and even if they were the one that pulled the trigger 
uh, literally or metaphorically, then that that wasn't what killed them. You know, what killed them was the depression. And then, and that by using language like died by suicide, you're acknowledging that this was something that if they were not ill, they would not have chosen. Um, and that's, I think, one of those things that goes a long way towards normalizing having these conversations and doing our little part to understand what the people who are suffering are going through. And even if we can't understand it, at least acknowledging that there's a struggle there. Yeah. I think also like when we use the word commit, um, that denotes like, like you commit a sin, you commit adultery, right? You commit murder. So when we say you commit suicide, we're putting it in the same like packaging um, and it's not the same thing, you know? So there's like a certain morality attached to it. And I think it's dangerous to do that because there, there's no morality involved in this. Like there's just like a sadness and a pain. And again, I think it allows people to judge then when we say, oh, they committed suicide. And we don't want that. Like we don't, there's no judgment here. Someone felt like the world would be better off without them. And like, there is just sadness there. Um, and we have to, you know, be careful about the language that we use. Right. For sure. And, and we do know that men are more likely to commit suicide than women. Yeah. Um, and that depression looks different in men than in women. So uh, give me a couple of minutes on that. What does, how does depression look different in men than in women? Um, and why do you think that men are more, are more likely to die by suicide? So men are more likely to die by suicide than women because we know that men are really brought up not to talk about their feelings, right? Like they're, we're told that like boys don't cry, like, oh, they just like beat each other up and then they're fine. And like, you know, they like things don't bother them. We also teach them like, don't cry, man up, right? Like men are not supposed to speak about their feelings. And we know statistically also that more women than men engage in therapy and talk therapy. Um, so even that in terms of like how far we've come with therapy and like the stigma around it, there are still men that like refuse to go to therapy. They say, well, I don't need it. I don't need to talk about it. I'll be fine. I could just like go to the gym or like go for a run and I'll be okay. So their coping mechanisms are already different. Women tend to be more um, emotional. And so they'll speak about their feelings when they're upset. Um, so it's interesting because women will have more suicide attempts, right? That they'll attempt suicide more, but men actually end up completing it more, right? So um, like when men attempt it, they end up completing the attempt. So they die by suicide. Women will have more attempts, but they don't end up dying by suicide. Um, so when a man is feeling suicidal, there is a greater chance that he may actually end up dying by suicide. So there's less time so again, to intervene in a man, essentially. Because like, yeah. if you have a, yeah. if you have attempted suicide, that's a big red flag, honey, we have issues that we, that need to be dealt with. Whereas yeah. if someone goes through with it, if it's a, I guess, successful attempt, but that feels like weird language to use, then yeah. ship a sail. There's not much you can do. Right. Not anything you can do. Yeah. And so that's why, like, I mean, we always take those attempts seriously, but um, certainly when, you know, when we see that a man um, is, you know, thinking about that or, you know, again, like that, that, that's something that's on their, you know, radar, that that's something that we need to really worry about because again, it, it's, it statistically men ends up completing suicide um, more than women. So that's, you know, that's something that should, you know, we should talk about, but yeah, men are told that like, you don't talk about your feelings and like, just deal with it, man up. Right. Don't cry. Crying for sure. Not talking about your feelings a little bit, you know, we're starting to a little bit more, but there's still around like a lot of stigma around men talking about their feelings. So, um, 
what will happen also is that men tend to say that their their depressed feelings are more like stress, right? So instead of saying like, you know, I'm feeling really depressed or down, they'll say like, oh, I'm just like stressed out, you know, and like, oh, but I'll be okay. Or like, oh, you know, it's whatever, I'll figure it out. Or like I said, you know, they'll have sleep problems and they'll be like, oh, it's because, you know, work is like tough on me or, you know, um, they'll be unhappy, but they'll just be like, oh, you know, whatever, it's fine, I'll deal with it. You know, so that's why I think when, when we hear these things from men, and certainly if you're, if you're a parent raising boys, um, you need to like make this part of their language. You need to make emotions and, and feelings something that are like normal to talk about in your home. Um, because we need to end this like stigma of like boys don't have feelings or emotions and like they don't have to talk about it. Because um, again, I think the statistic is so, it's crazy high. I think it's something like male death is like 80% of, of all the US suicides, which is like crazy, you know? Um, so we need to be talking about that. There needs to be more language around feelings and emotions um, and, you know, sending them to therapy. So if you have a, a you know, a teenage boy who's going through anxiety or stressed out about things, hey, do you want to talk to someone? Like, let's make it normal. You know, it's becoming more normal, definitely among kids. Like I find that in high school kids, it's funny now, like used to be, if you went to therapy when you were a kid, you did not talk about it. And now it's like, if you don't go, you're like weird. It's like, you don't have a therapist. What? Like it's funny. School- it has become a, it has become very much a thing. I think, especially among yeah. people my age, like those, like, I, I guess I'm technically a millennial. I don't know, but it's like, everyone talks about their therapist and then yeah, like, we like love yeah. talking about our therapist. We think we're like, they're the coolest people. And I see it like, you when are I, a pretty cool person, Rachel. Yeah. Obviously. <laughs> but like when I go into schools, it's funny. Like some of the littler kids that I see will like run up to me and they're like, she's my therapist. And like, they're so open about it. That's a credit to the parents for sure. But like, it's just become more normal. And like I said, in high schools, like I see it also that kids are like, why don't you see a therapist? Like I have a therapist. Do you want, like they hand out my number, you know, like it's really <laughs> interesting. Like they're, you know, um, so, so we need to take that normalized therapy and, and really be proud of it. Like this is not, therapy is not for people with problems. Like therapy is a way to support yourself and it could be preventative. It doesn't have to be an intervention. It could be prevention, you know, like it's a, a healthy, normal thing to do. Um, it's also important to know that men are more likely to self-treat with like drugs and alcohol, right? Right. Or other like Which we know makes depression worse because it messes with your brain. Yes. Yes. So, and yeah. that will only cause, and we know alcohol like causes increased anxiety, increased depression. Like it's really not a, you know, it becomes like cyclical then. Right. So like I'm super depressed and I want to numb myself. So I'm going to drink and, or I'm super anxious and I want to relax. So I'm going to drink. But then like when you get, when that alcohol wears off, then your anxiety is increased or your depression is increased. Like, it's just not, you know, it doesn't do anything to help um, your mood. It just, you know, gets you in this cycle of constantly feeling depressed and anxious and, and again, worsening it. Um, so we need to like teach men how to be vulnerable. We need to teach them that they can feel discomfort. We need to stop this like narrative of like, Oh, you can't be weak. Um, we need to talk about insecurities. We need to help them deal with anger, right? Because anger is a huge symptom for boys and men, that is often missed, you know, it can be a sign of depression, but we're just like, oh, you know, he's so aggressive or he's so, oh, he's just pissed off all the time. Like sometimes that's a sign of, you know, depression. We need to teach them how to deal with their emotions without alcohols. Um, and, and we want to teach them to like, you know, like I said, look inward, like talk about their feelings and get in touch with that. Um, and it starts, you know, when they're young, um, 
but and get, just getting them used to the idea of of airing those thoughts and then that also can be an indication to the people around them to get the help that they yeah. need. I want to end off this conversation with two important pieces of information. One, uh, in the United States, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline is 800-273-8255. Again, it's 800-273-8255. If you or someone you know feels like you need to talk to someone, it's a great place to start. Again, that's in the United States. And it says easily Googleable information if you are in um, other countries and stuff like that. And I do highly encourage you to get the help that you deserve. You, you deserve, we want you around. We, Rachel and I think you're pretty awesome. Yes. Um, if for no other reason than you just listen to us talk for almost an hour, yeah. then <laughs> we um, really do get, you know, do it, make the phone call, you know, ass- assuming you're not pranking them, no one will be mad at you for making the call, even if it's for nothing. Which, yeah. it, which, which it really isn't. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's the first really important piece of information. The second is that, like, I, like we said at the beginning, this is part of a longer series. We're going to be talking about lots of different mental health topics over this winter. Um, and Rachel's going to be joining me for all of them. If you want to learn more about her or enjoy her very good humor, I have to say, um, you can find her on Instagram. She's Rachel underscore Tuckman underscore LMHC. You can also just Google her and she pops up. She's very easy to find. Um, and that's, that's the best way to kind of learn more about her, get to know her and all of that. Thank you very much for this discussion today, Rachel. And I will see you next week where we're going to dive into a whole other topic and yes. really tackle mental health over this winter. Awesome. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Rachel, her links are in the show notes. This is the first of a series that will be running throughout the winter. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to this now so you don't miss the upcoming episodes. The Be Impactful podcast is a product of Impact Fashion, the clothing line I created because I believe that we are all deserving of the beautiful things life has to offer. See my modest designs that are available in sizes 2 through 24 by going to impactfashionnyc.com. Access all of that by swiping up on the cover art. There are currently 12 people listed by Ora Agunot as a recalcitrant party. View their names, photos, locations, and details of their cases by visiting getora.org slash recalcitrant parties. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses. Original music composed by Nissan Fetman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Rifki Etzkowitz. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.myc. As always, here's to making an impact together.